It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. We reserve the right for explicit language, but the algorithm reveals there is no such language in this episode. Hi, it's Mike, and it's Saturday, and this must be the Saturday show. Saturday night's all right for fighting, but Saturday afternoons, or whenever you tuck in to the Saturday show, it's time for introspection and contemplation. Not too much introspection. What we do every week is give you one of the best things we aired this week, one of the best things we aired ever. So, the timelier segment is a spiel, a rather long spiel, I did on Wednesday, talking about the tendency to treat the right and right-wing militias as a pressing threat upon our populace. Yes, they are pressing, but still, I urge some contextualization. There's an excellent uh, podcast and show I do, a YouTube show called In Lieu of Fun, and I was on that on Friday talking about these issues. If you want to see two smart people who I think slightly disagree with me, tease out my opinions. So that was from the Spiel on Wednesday. And from the vaults, we have this interview with John Urschel, who is a former lineman for the Baltimore Ravens and also a very smart guy. He's somewhat of a chess prodigy and he pursued his PhD in mathematics. So it was one of those offensive linemen versus advanced mathematical concept type tensions. He wrote a book. He was on to talk about it in June of 2019. I know uh, him and his wife, Louisa, who, uh, who is an excellent writer in her own right. Louisa Thomas. She contributed to my book upon further review. And our interview is one of the more delightful ones. We air it as the NFL preseason is going strong, as is John Urschel, no longer in the NFL, but certainly hitting the textbooks and the calculations as hard as he ever hit a nose tackle. So enjoy. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures the Defender family 
Features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. So finally on the gist, there comes a time when I get to talk about a topic that I've just been fascinated with for a long time, but I haven't had the right guest. Yes, it's time to talk about centroidal Voronoi tessellations. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm lying. But John Urschel, my guest, his eyes lit up a little bit because that's what he's studying at MIT. He is a former NFL player who now is a top mathematician. I'm going to say top. I mean, I'm looking at the cover of his book and there's a lot of impressive looking uh, uh, formulas. So that, that says top to me. And he's out with a new book with his wife, Louisa Thomas. It's na- the name of the book is Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. And Louisa uh, wrote a chapter for my book upon further review. And she has been on the gist before and is one of my favorite writers. And I want to talk about the contents of the book and the project of writing it together. Thank you guys for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. So you probably, you say in the book, John, that you got, I don't know if the word is annoyed, you understand why people would ask it, but uh, the people who are interested in you while you were playing football, the fact that you had this math sideline, they always tried to make a connection that wasn't there, which is, I guess, we can expect it out of human beings, but was it just a strained analogy they were trying to make? Or why do you think people grasp so hard to try to analogize math with football? Well, I... uh I don't know. I feel like this is sort of human nature. You mm-hmm. always want to make connections yes. out of things that aren't there. I mean, this is actually human nature. And I have to admit that, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I have gone on interviews and I've said, you know, yeah, math uh, math helps me learn the playbook or like what – I tell people what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. But like really what connects the two of these things is that they're two things that I really love. Yeah. They're two things that I did at a high level. And I've come to realize that when you try to be really, really good at something, the characteristics that lead you to that, no matter what the field, are the same. So an unreasonable love for what you're doing, a sort of drive to succeed, and sort of a resiliency in the face of a lot of adversity and a lot of setbacks. And of course, you need some talent. But these are the things that sort of make you good at something. And so I find that that's what sort of being good at two things almost always has in common. So in writing the book, what you guys had to do was decide how to present the math parts, how to present the football parts. And since you say early on what you just said, John, they're separate. You just separated them. You just alternated. It was pretty cool. It was very easy to understand. Yeah, it was actually um, it was very funny because writers are very prone to making uh, connections between between different things. I mean, that's what a, a metaphor is. I yes. mean, that's sort of like one of the main tools of the trade. Um, and in the first draft, I will admit, you're reading the final version, not the first version. And in the first draft, we tried to integrate it a lot more. And um, it didn't really work, actually, because it wasn't true. John really did have a kind of football life and a math life. And what connected them was 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 him. Um, and so in the end, we were like, well, why don't we just do the math and do the football and do the math and do the football? And uh, hopefully if the voice is true and the person behind it is real, then those things will cohere. But yeah. um, we shouldn't try and force it both. Yeah. I have read studies, though, that certain positions in football correlate to certain personalities. 
Do you think offensive linemen, is it not true that offensive linemen are perhaps slightly more sensible than, let me name a couple other position, like defensive linemen, defensive ends, blitzing linebackers. I find that offensive linemen are a little bit more sensible. I think we're a little more sensible too, and I think it might have something to do with I think offensive line as a position more than a lot of other positions like defensive tackle require a lot of hard work, mm-hmm. a lot of practice, yeah. a lot of honing your technique. A lot of the techniques you use as an offensive lineman are sort of unnatural in a way. Yeah. And so I think the characteristics that lead you to succeed as an offensive lineman, having to work with other people, your sort of success on the field, being intimately tied to the people playing next to you, I think that sort of suits people with certain characteristics better. But there was there's another thing. Okay, so this is this is actually not math and football, but it's personality. You just mentioned that maybe one reason offensive linemen are the way they are in general is that they have to be cohesive and work with a group. Mm-hmm. You write about strategizing becoming a part of the group. You were an outsider type kid and then you make the, you made this conscious intellectual choice mm-hmm. to become part of a group. Yes. So there to me that says a little bit of an intellectual choice, uh, something that most people would either go about emotionally or naturally without even thinking about it. You made an intellectual choice that in some way comports with uh, the at least the position you played in football. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, uh, I th- like to think the majority of my choices at least should be intellectually Well, driven. most people, but no, I mean, like you even say in the book that you're, you, you were what, made to lick a tree when you were in elementary school. That's true. And you knew you were, would we say nerdy, the kid, were you a nerdy kid is why you were an outsider? You were just into your own thing. Well, I was fat as well. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. so I was fat, I was nerdy, I mean, but yeah, there were a number of reasons and I did get bullied and yes, this was somewhat scarring for me as a young person. And I sort of decided, you know what? How do I fix this? What are all the other kids doing? Let me do what the cool kids are doing and I will be fine. And what do you know? I started doing what they were doing. I started playing lacrosse. I started doing street hockey. And all of a sudden, I was fine. Yeah. And this is uh, the sentence in the book is, I think, conformity is a beautiful thing. It's true. Okay. Not So first of all, <laughs> yeah. I should say, I want to qualify this. This is not necessarily what I'm recommending as the solution to, let's say, the no. you know, problem of bullying in schools. But Your kid comes to you with the problem. You wouldn't say you need to conform. Find yes, out what they're no, into. No, no. Do that. No, this yeah. is not the advice I'm giving kids around the country, but yeah. I wanted to stop getting bullied. Yeah. This was my solution. Who wrote, who came up with the sentence? That sentence itself. Oh, that's my sentence. Yeah. That's your yes, sentence. that is my sentence. What do you think, Louisa, what do you think when he said that sentence? Oh, he actually said it to me uh, like years before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I say this anytime I talk about like this time in my life. No, this is this is something I say. It was um, a memorable sentence yeah. and he said it early on and I was uh, ready to deploy it at the right yeah. moment. Yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a poster that I always think of. I don't know if you've seen this poster. It's a poster, and it's a bunch of penguins. Yeah. And it says, conformity on the top. The odd one out gets left in the cold. It just shows, like, a penguin by itself. And, like, this is uh, this is what I think of. This yeah. is what I think of when I think of my, my younger self. But to the world of penguins reading that poster, they'd be like, I don't understand. They're all distinct. I can totally tell them <laughs> apart. <laughs> it doesn't scan in the penguin world. If you had to reform 
both of your fields in a way that you think is doable. So I'm not going to have you reinvent the game of football, but what would some of your, some of the ways that football can be improved and math can be improved? And you can take this wherever you want, like how math is being taught, how the, the sixth grader learns math, what's yes, the methods I would, at the college level. I would, would focus on how math is being taught. Yeah. I would, uh, well, okay, suppose you're a young person and you're in a math classroom. I want you to know what people use mathematics for in our world at a high level. I would love every single math classroom to say, have a poster of famous mathematicians to have a poster of showing elite computer scientists who, of course, are using high-level math, uh, show posters of very successful people in finance, show sort of all the different careers that a mathematician sort of can pursue and all the sort of fields that really use math at a very, very high level. That would be good. And what about your football reforms? Oh, football's good the way it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you know who I identified with and I thought made the correct calls during the book is your mom when she wanted you to go to Stanford. It's mm-hmm. a good football team. Like you could play football at Stanford and also get a, an advanced degree. And then after the Paterno scandal, mm-hmm. sorry, I should call it the Sandusky scandal, Paterno steps down, you have a chance to go to Stanford. If I was her, I'd have made the same advice. But as you explain it in your book, I uh, totally get in respect why you stayed. The team, the brotherhood, yeah. the bond between your teammates. Absolutely. I mean, when I look back on my career as a football player, my years at Penn State were my absolute favorite years of football playing for the university that's given me so much, wearing that jersey, representing my school, going out on Saturdays in front of 106,000 fans with my best friends in the world. Like the guys next to me, you know, I was playing right guard. My center, he was my best man. My right tackle, may he rest in peace, was one of my best friends. Mm. And I have to say that there's just something amazing about being so close where we did everything together. Like, you know, we go to practice together, we watch film together, we eat together, we hang out together, we go out on the weekends together. It's uh, like it's a closeness that you're not going to find in many other places. I don't know where else. Does it make you jealous given what we do? There's no camaraderie <laughs> like that in journalism. It's true. A, a writing is a, a little bit lonely. Um John will tell you that sometimes he would go to football practice and he'd be exhausted when he came home. And I'd have been at home writing all day. And he would come in, and I'd be like, "Bye bye! Can't wait to talk to a human being." And yeah, he'd be like, yeah. "Whoa, let <laughs> yeah, me yeah. relax." It was a, like it's a because you know I'm playing pro football, and you know it's a full time job. Okay, it's not like okay. First of all, pro football sort of environment was way different than what I had at Penn State. Even I've come to learn most college football environments were very different than what I had at Penn State. Oh, really? Because yeah. I think most college environments sell you on the idea that it's like yeah. the brotherhood of Penn but State. But I think it's not. Huh. I think it's not. Like, I've talked to sort of teammates of mine in the league, and when I t- tell them, like, what my college experience was like, and they tell me what their college experience was like, we were so much closer at Penn State than it seems like uh, at other places. And, and not because necessarily you went through it, the scandal that you went through? I, uh, I think that has something to do with it. I think another thing that has to do with it is, okay, I mean, okay, this is going to sound ridiculous, but uh, I think Penn State legitimately recruited good guys. Yeah. Like, we always had a, one of the highest graduation rates in the country, often like one, two, or three. Graduating was important. Academics were important. Being 
a good young man growing up to be a good man, like this, this was an important thing that was really talked about. What you did outside of football mattered. How you carried yourself, this was really important. And I have to say, like, when I look at, you know, the teammates I had at Penn State, okay, every team has one or two bad apples. But by and large, this is just a group full of great guys who love football, who, you know, are just so happy to be a part of Penn State football. Whereas I talk to some of my like teammates in the league and they tell me like their teams were sort of kind of like there were some good guys on their team that they liked. Yeah. But a lot of trash. Yeah. Is, you know, the way it was described to me. And I would say we had none of that at Penn State. I just I think that a case can be made. But you tell me you've gotten more elite in this field math Mm -hmm. than you were in in the NFL and football. And yet. It does seem that you got so much attention for being in the NFL and comparatively less attention. I mean, the fact that you were able to do both. But mm-hmm. look at a top mathematician and the attention paid to him by society. Look mm-hmm. at a top NFL player and it's a gigantic disparity. I will definitely say that I think I have much more natural talent in mathematics and football. Mm-hmm. I already had to work really, really hard to get where I sort of got to in football. It took a lot of work. Was there a piece of uh, journalism about John that you thought, because as detailed in the book, much of it is cliche and much of it is just hitting the notes that you know are very easy to hit. Was there ever the a really good or the definitive piece about John before this, do you think? Before the book? Um, yeah. Well, there was recently a profile by Jordan Ellenberg, who's a mathematician sure. that I quite liked. See, that's interesting because Ellenberg's a math writer. Yeah. I mean, he's a writer-writer, but he's a mathematician. Yeah. He loves sports. Yeah. He's been on the show a bunch. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that it took the math guy, not the sports guy, to get it. Maybe. I mean, I think that sports writing can be really hard. I mean, it's hard for me a lot of times. You get limited access. And I think a lot of athletes are both trained to speak in cliches and also punished if they don't right. often. Like it never hurt you when you gave those fake answers about how math helps you on the field. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, if I have some interviews lined up that I have to do, why why would I have any interest in sort of like going into something more complicated mm-hmm. than it needs to be? It's also true that I think a lot of athletes or some great athletes really believe what they're saying. And it sounds cliched and silly and, yeah. and unbelievable yeah. um, to a journalist or on the page. It looks very flat and, and silly often. Yeah. But um, when you're actually speaking to them, often it's, especially if they're a little bit charismatic, like you actually become a, it's like talking to a true believer. I mean, there's yeah. almost something um, religious about the faith and confidence that a lot of athletes have, which I think is really integral to their success. So sometimes what seems like a cliche factory is actually much more important and and tied to their performance than you might otherwise assume. And then it's important for you to rely on something other than their quote to explain them to the reader. Yeah, Derek Jeter was always like that. He's not introspective, but him not being introspective, see ball, hit ball, is exactly what makes him Derek, or one of the huge parts that makes him Derek Jeter, I think. Yeah, Yeah. so that's one one of the big challenges. Yeah. Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football by John Urschel and Louisa Thomas. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now the spiel. It's been a week since the FBI executed a warrant on Donald Trump's Florida estate and a little more than a week since the bedraggled voices of militancy began to be taken more seriously than they had in at least a little while. Not just talk of civil war, but TikTok talk of civil war. Someone put together a compilation of angry bearded white people and the occasional non-bearded woman talking tough on social media. Dear IRS, we the people accept your civil war. We've been waiting for this for a long time. If it's war that you think you really want, and ye shall get, there ain't no doubt about that in my mind. You fucking liberal Democrats are fixing to start something. I don't think you want it. You ain't uh, goddamn fucking uh, smart enough to realize and know your history well enough to know what's fixing to happen. A couple days ago, Donald Trump was on Fox News saying he wants to do what he can to bring the temperature down. You may say that's pretty rich coming from the arsonist in chief, but at least it's better than the kindling and oily rags he usually brings to the bonfire. More directly on this point was Mike Pence in New Hampshire today. The Republican Party is the party of law and order. Our party stands with the men and women who serve on the thin blue line at the federal and state and local level. And these attacks on the FBI must stop. On this show, I have chronicled what I believe to be a consensus, at least within the media that you and I consume, that right-wing militias and heavily armed Trump-supporting citizens are a serious threat. I think that's true. I think if we were living in Japan or the UK or Germany or Indonesia, actually, I would count the number of these well-armed individuals who've expressed a lust for violence and be extremely afraid. I'd prioritize them. I think they're the one of the most dangerous things our country has to deal with. In the United States, however, it's not the case. There are 20,000 actual murders. The threat of right-wing radicals killing in the name of ideology is relatively quite low compared to the murder that's going on all the time. And you know what's higher in the last week than the threat of right-wing radicals? The reality of Iranian-backed violence within the last couple days, Iranian operatives allegedly attempted to kill a former administration official, John Bolton, a man with Lebanese roots presumably inspired by an Iranian fatwa, savagely attacked Salman Rushdie, and a Brooklyn-based journalist and Iranian dissident, Maseya Alinejad, was stalked by a man named Khalif Metev who was arrested with a semi-automatic rifle and ammunition in his car. This doesn't even mention the four killings of Muslims in Albuquerque by a Muslim, though that man was allegedly targeting Shias. 
So it's not of a piece with the rest of this. But if the media wanted to, they could craft that narrative. They could make us all scared. There are many, many more actual victims of actual radical Iranian-inspired terrorists in the U.S. than there are victims of right-wing terrorists in the U.S. last week when the right-wing terrorist trope was at its ascendance. In fact, there are actually no victims of right-wing militia members. A man attempted to assault Cincinnati FBI headquarters with carpentry tools. He was killed by the FBI, and another man was arrested for making threats to the FBI. And of course, of course, of course, the authorities must track and monitor right-wing militia members. But I think if there is any group that federal officials will have incentive to track and monitor, it's groups that target federal officials. In a way, we're lucky. Historically in this country, we had to call the federal government to account when the people being threatened were from marginalized communities who often didn't get the protection they deserved. I think the FBI will give itself the protection it deserves, which speaks to a bit of the overall idiocy of the people who are threatening the FBI. Not to say idiots can't do great harm, but to say, and I want to be clear in saying this, they are idiots. When, on this show, I talked about the cycle of blame and fear and enmity flowing between right-wing militias, frightened and therefore defensive progressives, and then back to the right, the most frequent comment I got was that I was excusing the true evildoers, that it was disproportionate, that the right was doing much more wrong than the left could ever be said to be doing. And I'm not doing that. I'm not both sizing this. The threats absolutely are disproportionately, though not exclusively, from the right. Roll Call Magazine asked every member of Congress if they've received death threats since 2020. Of those who responded, and the majority did not, 70 Democratic members of Congress said they've received death threats. 40 Republican members of Congress said they've received death threats. America's a violent place. People have access to guns. But they also have access to social media where they could pose and preen and egg each other on. And sometimes that bravado results in violence. More often than not, it's in-group signaling. We can choose to believe that the right is violent or that the right wants us dead. Or to put the common perception a little more fairly, I do think there's a widespread belief that many on the right are on the verge of physical violence. There's enough evidence for you out there that if you want to emphasize that, that could become your reality. But it's not as real as the evidence showing that Iranians want us dead. Or if you count the bodies, Cincinnati nail gun guy, Ashley Babbitt, other members of the sovereign citizens movement, you could point out that right-wing militias seem to be mostly on a suicide mission, not bringing too many others with them. The threat of violence against federal law enforcement, absolutely scary. The threat of violence against local law enforcement? Well, that's real too. In 2016, Gavin Long, a black separatist, self-identified member of the Nation of Islam, ambushed six Baton Rouge police officers, killing three. Two weeks later, Micah X. Johnson ambushed a group of police officers in Dallas, shooting and killing five, wounding nine. He too was inspired by racial resentment to kill cops. I don't remember at the time most in the media promoting the idea of the danger and imminent violence from disaffected black and notionally left-wing shooters towards cops. I don't believe it would have been responsible to advance that narrative, but there was much more evidence of that. You could have said that much more assuredly than you could back up the claim that someone's going to get killed over comedian-turned-podcast put Steven Crowder's claim that civil war is nigh. Threats against law enforcement? 
I would not blame the left. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's mostly people affiliated with political parties who are the source of violence against law enforcement by anarchists during the summer of 2020 who are behind Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone where they did in fact drive out police and murders did follow. Uh, the two lawyers who firebombed an NYPD car during the 2020 protests, the Minneapolis police precinct that was burned down. In the Atlantic, the Washington Post, and on MSNBC to pick three prominent outlets that to pick three prominent outlets that have done big stories on the threat of violence from the right, was the arson at the police station coded as scary violence toward law enforcement from the left? It could have been. It probably shouldn't have been, but it could have been. It's, uh, but it could have been. Those outlets were so inclined. It's so hard for me to emphasize and to convince you, if you're not prone to being convinced, that I'm really not trying to engage in both sidesism or whataboutism. But the examples of left-wing violence against local law enforcement and right-wing violence against federal law enforcement, I think, are close enough in fact, but disparate enough in coverage as to at least perhaps prompt you to question the consistency at play. And by the way, the right absolutely sees this as inconsistent, and that in turn drives resentment. What I don't want to do is to amp up threats from any quarter. I'm not, if, if what I've done here is to convince you, oh yeah, the left's scary too, I absolutely have not done my job. I don't want to ignore any of these stories. I think we should be aware that we tend to run away with narratives of danger when our side is the one in danger and when people we loathe are the ones perpetuating the danger. Lift either of those conditions and we tend to see things in a much more nuanced way. When we're not threatened, it's, well, a police station is only a building, it's not people. But what about FBI headquarters in Cincinnati? Oh, that's a symbol of safety, of governance, of societal continuity. So it's something like, their angry users of Truth Social are loons, our angry users of TikTok are understandably venting. To be fair to even MSNBC, which I cited as a perpetuator of the Civil War narrative, I did come across this analysis from their host, Lawrence O'Donnell. It aired the day after the search was revealed when news stations were covering the dozen or so anti-FBI protesters outside Mar-a-Lago. Clip runs about a minute. Right-wing social media? That is a complete nuthouse of madness and emptiness. Ignore all of that and notice that 5.6 million Trump voters in Florida have not done a single thing because of the FBI search of Donald Trump's home. None of them changed their schedules today. And 74 million Trump supporters nationwide, including the guy on Twitter who said war was going to start today, have done absolutely nothing. The war guy himself did absolutely nothing today, but he did get a massive amount of attention to his tweet on television today. And virtually all of that attention <laughs> took his war tweet seriously. I say we should take these loons seriously and maybe at times literally, but not excessively. Let's not let their paranoia drive Hours.
And that's it for the Saturday show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the show's senior producer. And we will talk to you Monday. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.